Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 106 with a professor of psychology, consultant in elite sport and co-host of the high performance podcast, Damien Hughes. So Damien was on the podcast way back in January 2019, episode 11, um, and he's absolutely brilliant. I love speaking to Damien and it was great to catch up with him. Anyone that's heard of Damien's work beforehand will appreciate how good a practitioner he is, but also um, I'm sure many of the listeners have listened to any episodes of the High Performance Podcast. If you haven't done so, I do recommend you go and check it out. They've got some great guests on there already, and I know they've got another series coming up very soon, so go and check it out. So just search High Performance Podcast anywhere that you listen to your podcast. So Damien came on to talk about, um, give a catch up on what he's been up to, He also spoke about some reflections of the High Performance Podcast and some of the guests they've had on, including some of the ex-professional footballers and current managers, Frank Lampard, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Mauricio Pochettino, um, and uh, numerous others as well. We spoke about some common traits of high performers. We touched on some key behaviours in setting the standard or the tone of a session. And then we spoke about the importance and how to build self-belief and confidence in our coaching practice as well. So it was brilliant to catch up with Damien. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, as you can tell by it being over an hour long, and I hope you enjoy it too. Please, as always, share the show and make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and also YouTube, um, and share it with anyone that you think will benefit from the show. And I hope you enjoy episode 106 with Damien Hughes. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 106 and I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast after a very long time when I checked the date of our last conversation, Damien Hughes. Damien, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me back, Ben. I'm like a bad penny, keep turning up. But uh, hey, thank you and congratulations on episode 106 is a is a sign of your consistency so uh, thanks for having me on and congratulations thank you mate no when i when i checked it was actually january 2019 was our, our was it? conversation which is crazy um, heck. so yeah i appreciate you coming back on it's been well overdue um yeah, and i no, know thank you i know you've been massively busy because i've been keeping up with some stuff that you've got going on, but I'm sure there's other stuff that I don't know about. So do you want to give a, do you want to give a little brief? Because people can go back and they can listen to episode 11 with yourself because yeah. I know you go a bit, you go into your background and, and everyone that you've worked with on that. But do you just want to give a bit of a brief background and then a bit of an update as well? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so say people having to go back. Um, so my name's uh, Damien Hughes and it's easier to explain um what i do in terms of three different roles really so um one of the roles i do is i work as a visiting professor at manchester met university um look at my background is in organizational psychology and change so looking at how do you build strong teams and strong cultures that can then cope with the pressures that they'll inevitably come under the second job i do is i work as a consultant across quite a wide range of organizations so from business to education but predominantly most of it's in elite sport, working with coaches to develop high-performing teams and cultures. And then the third job I do is I write and 
Um, I've, since we last spoke, I've started to co-host a podcast as well, which fits under the same bracket. Um, and it's called the High Performance Podcast. So, And that's what the books are around, around how do you create high-performing teams uh, and cultures. And that's what the podcast does. It just We just chat with um, high performers around some of those same principles. So, yeah, it's easier to explain what I do uh, uh, through the lens of those three different roles. Now, I'm sure many of the listeners, if not all the listeners, have listened to at least some of the podcasts. And I've just been saying to you before we started recording that I'm thoroughly enjoying them. I think the the sort of... um, The guys that you're targeting, not just in sport, but the business guys as well, there's so many lessons in there. And it's something that I do want to dive in um, with yourself on, nice. on this podcast as well. Um, and just initially, like what are some of the biggest lessons or reflections? Cause you've spoke to a number of different people on that, on that podcast now, um, from a range of different areas. So what are some of your initial reflections or takeaways from it so far? Yeah, it's a really good question, Ben. And well, first of all, thanks for listening to it. Um, because we've almost tried it out, the idea of it. So I, I keep saying we should explain that I co-host it with Jay Comfrey, um, who is the um, is the football presenter on BT Sport, is where most people might know him all through Formula One previously on the BBC. So Jake and myself uh, host it together. And we've been really lucky. We've sat down with people uh, from the likes of Ole Solskjaer, Frank Lampard, Sean Dyche, um, Mauricio Pochettino from a football coach's point of view through to uh, business leaders like Michelle Moan um, and Holly Tucker, the lady that's out uh, not on the high street. And then we've also spoken to people like Marcelino Sambe, who was the principal lead dancer for the Royal Ballet. So we, we're talking to like quite a diverse collection of people and the principle is around getting them to explain to us what high performance is and how they got to deliver such sustained, consistent high performance. And I think there's, there are some really uh, common themes that come out of it. I think one of the first themes that really has intrigued me is, is they know what they know, but they equally know what they don't know. And that taps into a concept that, that is referred to as the Dunning-Kruger law. Now, the Dunning-Kruger law is named after... Uh, two uh, psychologists at Stanford University, Dunning and Kruger. And what their idea says is, is that if you're clever you, or if you're talented or good at something, you're smart enough to be able to explain why you're good at it. Now, on the flip side, if you're bad at something, you don't understand why this is. If you think about, if you ever watch a, a coach after a game, coaches that get beat after a game, the ones that seem to understand it come out and explain what they didn't do. So they might say, oh, our intensity wasn't good enough or our passing wasn't sharp enough and they and they internalise it. Coaches that don't, that maybe don't get to that same level come out and externalise it and blame the referee or the opposition. So they don't know why they didn't perform because they don't understand it well enough is the idea behind it. And this has been really interesting with all our high performers. When we speak to them around high performance in their world, they're really eloquent and can talk in detail about what it's taken and the sacrifices and the commitment and the lessons they've learned. But one of our interesting things is when you say to them, how do you do this as a parent or how do you do this as a partner? What's really interesting is their their humility kicks in and they go, I don't know. 
So, so Dylan Hartley, the former England rugby player, uh, captain, was a really good example of this on in an interview that he was telling us about uh, his disciplinary record and how he had to play on the edge to feel like he was contributing to the team and how he'd sort of left home at 15 from New Zealand and become independent and how that had forged him. And then we were saying to him, right, you've got two young children. How do you, how do you take these high-performance lessons and apply them to the kids? And he was like, I don't know, mate. Said I've got no idea because I'm learning to be a parent, and I've not got any expertise in parenting, so I'm almost trying these ideas out. And I think that was a really neat summary of how they know what they know, but equally they know what they don't know, and so they're just as equal to be curious and to learn and to ask questions if they feel it can aid their performance. So there's a humility behind all of them. I'd say another big factor that comes out is that they all have really clear non-negotiable behaviours. So it just removes any ambiguity from their world. So they'll tell you, these are the rules of the game. If you want to come along with me or you want to work with me, these are the rules of the game now. I know when we spoke on podcast 11, I shared with you some research I'd done at Barcelona and I'd spoke about this idea of non-negotiable behaviours. But that's important for an individual or for a culture that you say, this is what we expect. So we've interviewed the likes of um, Solskjaer, as I mentioned, Rio Ferdinand and Robin Van Persie and Phil Neville. So they all came through that era of success at Manchester United. And what's interesting there is they talk about three non-negotiable behaviours that Ferguson just laid down and they were expected to buy into. So they were the idea of relentlessness, that you play to win, you just keep going after the win. The second one was courage. You've got to put your balls on the line. You've got to really take a risk. And then the third one was you've got to be a team player. So there's a really nice exchange that we had with Rio Ferdinand where he was telling us a story about how um, there was one occasion where Dimitar Berbatov didn't make a run across the field to show for a ball. And Ferdinand says he absolutely laced into him. And, uh, and Berbatov had said to him, oh, he said, relax, what are you worried about? He said, at Barcelona, you don't have to run like this. And Ferdinand had said, well, fuck off to Barcelona then. This is Manchester United. And you work hard, you're relentless in terms of your work ethic. And if you don't want to do that, go somewhere else. And what he was talking about there was, it wasn't a personal argument. It was an argument about behaviours because he saw it as incumbent to defend the culture. So they all have these kind of non-negotiable behaviours um, I'll give you another nice story from it that when we interviewed um, Chris Hoy uh, we were due to meet him we were meeting in the Northern Quarter in Manchester um, and it was 10 o'clock it was it was a really cold wet day and uh, 10 to 10 the, the knock on the door we opened the door Chris Hoy's waiting for us and I was like oh thanks for coming in Chris and we were chatting and I said oh thanks for being here on time really appreciate it and he was like why would I not be on time and I was like, well, no, I appreciate it's difficult to find, it's cold. He went, no, no, we've arranged to meet at 10 o'clock, I'm here for 10 to 10. And then I thought, this is a thread worth pulling. So I said to him, it just sort of exploded with him. And he was like, listen, if we arrange to meet at 10 o'clock and I turn up late, he said, that implies that I think my time is more important than yours. Mm. And by definition, that implies that I think I'm better or more important than you. And he went, I'm just not having that, that's just not the person I am. So when we explored that, a non-negotiable behaviours for him was do what you say. So if you commit to do something, do it. Be reliable and treat everyone with respect and dignity. Now you go, 
does that do those fiend non-negotiable behaviors uh manifest themselves when he was winning eight gold medals you go yeah definitely because when he committed to do something he went all out for it you know what i mean he, he treated his competitors and it, and the people that were there to support him with uh, with respect and he was and he, he was relentless in terms of doing the right thing so you see all these things sort of emerging and that's what we've really noticed in the interview so there's a humility and there's also a really clear clear-eyed idea of this is what I stand for this is what I'm not prepared to compromise on yeah, and I like that you mentioned about the family and the parenting side of it as well, because that, that was really fascinating for me. Because I know you spoke to, um, I think it was Phil Neville that talked about getting the kids up and training before um, yeah. early in the morning. And obviously you mentioned about Dylan Hartley then as well. And I think some of them realise that their levels are so high. Like Neville's obviously trying to maximise absolutely everything, isn't he? Um I thought yeah. Hartley is probably doing the same, but without necessarily realizing it. I'm guessing. Yeah, very much. I think. I think like it, it, it's a good example you mentioned with Phil because he because he was fascinating. I, I'd like I'd, I'd been lucky enough. I've worked with uh, Tracy, his sister, when she was doing the England Roses. So I know that there's some family values that are that are inherent in both her and the two brothers, but. To hear Phil articulate it in relation to a competitive world like Manchester United was fascinating because he told the story about when he left Manchester United and he went to Everton. And he, and I asked him how he coped. And he went, he said, I, I, he used to go to the gym before training at Everton just to do his prep work and to do a little bit of extras. And he said that they took the piss out of him. They laughed at him. They called him teacher's pet. They made him feel silly for doing it and then he said eventually when it, he he just didn't waver from that non-negotiable about uh, like getting up early doing the best you can and then he said eventually four or five other players started turning up with him in the gym and he play, he he was sort of humble enough to recognize that he played a part in shifting the culture at Everton to be, become more professional and but that's not something he just did in work and was different outside of it he spoke about how that was the same standards that he'd applied as a father. So he spoke quite movingly about his daughter was born with cerebral palsy. So realised that, you know, there were some physical disadvantages that she was going to have to overcome and he just refused to allow them to become an excuse. His point was you can still get up, you can still work to your capacity as best you can. So again, I think this has been a really interesting insight that people can take away from it that, that, these people don't just do this every now and again. It's not just an occasional thing. It's an everyday thing in terms of their behaviours that drives the consistency. So, I mean, if you don't mind me saying it, it's a bit like that reference that we made at the start. For you to get to 106 episodes is a sign of consistency. Do you know what I mean? It, that, that anyone can do the occasional podcast, but to churn out the quality relentlessly that you do with the questions and your insight and things like that is, is a sign of consistency. And that's what all high performers have in common. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um, on, on the Neville thing as well, Damien, I think one area that's really fascinating with that, because I, I really like every time you talk about culture, when we spoke on the episode, loads of things have sort of stuck in my head and especially the cultural assassin, the cultural architect, ever, ever since yeah. we spoke about that, that's the first time I'd ever 
sort of heard those phrases used. But now, since that point, every time I look at a team or work with a team, um, you can point them out a mile off, can't you? And externally, sometimes I think you can. But like in the Neville example, people looking from the outside wouldn't know that he did that and he could have that big an impact on that culture by simply going and doing those gym sessions every morning. But it, over his time at Everton, obviously that was, that was a big change in the culture by the looks of things from the, from the outside. Um, but for, we, talk about, we talk about culture a lot on this podcast in terms of creating yeah. culture. And obviously a lot of our listeners are S&C coaches and sports scientists. So we talk about gym culture a lot in football. Yeah. It's very, very different to a lot of other sports, like rugby, for example, like the, the rugby players, they, it's just bred into them that they, they do the gym, they go all out in the gym, whereas football isn't the same. So it's really interesting that for me that Neville was seen as such a, um, an outsider or um, so, so different to what they were doing normally, whereas a lot of people would probably think, oh, elite footballers, they must train really hard in the gym and prepare themselves in a professional way. It's a brilliant point, Ben. I think, um, and, but I think that like Frank Lampard gave another good insight to this when we spoke with him, that he spoke about coming through at West Ham's Academy and how he used to stay behind and do extras. That he was, he was sort of like his dad had, his dad had been a former footballer and his dad had said, you don't compromise on this, you work harder than the opposition. So he was constantly in the gym doing extras after training just to keep himself topped up. And he spoke about how like people took the piss out of him people they use that horrible term in football that you're busy Mm. and they called him busy and they thought that uh, he was doing it but he knew where he wanted to go and he wasn't prepared to compromise his standards now what was interesting is in a separate discussion Rio Ferdinand said that it was seeing Frank Lampard do those extras that prompted him to go maybe I need to be doing this as well Mm. so he would then go to Lampard and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Can I join in with you? And it almost became a competition between them to see who could keep their standards high. Now that to me is a perfect example of what a cultural architect can do, that somebody just sets the example and then you'll get others that will then seek to come along with them or aspire to, um, uh, to join in with them. And a cultural architect embraces that the cultural assassin is the guy sat there laughing at you or undermining you or trying to take the piss out of you for doing it. And that these are all subtle ways of, 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 of seeing how this either builds and enhances a culture or it just chips away and undermines it. No, I think it's a really important point for coaches working at any team in any level of football because we'll all be able to think of people that match those descriptions straight away, whether it's currently in a squad that you're working with or a squad that you previously worked with, I can think of a number. Um, And we spoke again recently with coaches that have talked about um, changing the the gym culture in particular, so getting players into the gym and comfortable within the gym and and potentially using things that are are a little bit attractive for players that they, they like doing. It's not necessarily something that the coach fully agrees in, yeah. But if they could get them into that environment, then they can make the impact. Well, it's a really good point, Ben. I think that when we talk about trying to change behaviour or, or trying to tempt people for this, it's very difficult because you can create the environment. So if you're a coach in the gym, you can create the environment of of, of sort of like um, creating an, 
the culture and having your non-negotiable behaviours of when you come in here, I think it's important you clarify in this domain, these are the rules of the game that you're signing up to and explain why why they're there. So they're not just rules for the sake of it. They're almost guidelines that explain that you turn up, you do your prayer part. So if you remember on the last example I spoke to you, that I grew up as a son of a boxing coach. So my dad ran a boxing gym in North Manchester and he had really clear non-negotiable behaviours. And the one that I sometimes refer to is the fact that you weren't allowed to use bad language in the gym. That wasn't a moral reason of not swearing offended anybody. It was the fact that it was a boxing gym. And the idea was that if you can't hold your tongue, so if if when you're faced with something, your immediate response is to start effing and blinding, that indicates a lack of discipline, that you can't keep your mouth shut or, or find an alternative term. And if you lack discipline to do that, you'll lack discipline when you go in the ring to follow the game plan. And if you lack discipline, you're likely to get hurt. So there was a really clear alignment between that behaviour, that non-negotiable behaviour of discipline and how it related to bad language. So it was just an easy way of manifesting it. So as a coach in a gym, if you can articulate, these are my three non-negotiables and this is why it's important, I think that can help enhance it. But in terms of trying to spot cultural architects and, and, and their equivalent, the assassins, there's two ways in which you look at it. So there's two ways anybody makes a decision. So if you think about it from if you're trying to get a player to come in and commit to doing extras, there's two ways that we all make decisions. One way we make a decision is we do a cost versus benefit analysis. So you go, what is the benefit of me coming in and staying behind for an extra hour and doing some work here versus what are the consequences? What am I missing out on? So some people will make a decision cost versus benefit. And if you can articulate enough costs for them, they'll do it, right? The other way you make people make a decision is they make a decision via identity. And when you make a decision via identity, what you do there is you ask yourself three simple questions. You go, who am I? What's this situation I'm faced with? And what would somebody like me do in this situation? So the difference there is you'll notice you're not worried about cost versus benefit. You're worried about doing the right thing. So if you see yourself as being like the Chris Hoy example, I'm a down-to-earth bloke that does what I says I do, and then you can depend on me to deliver. You turn up at 10 to 10 for a meeting, even if you've got other things going on. No, no, I've committed, I'll be down there. So he's making a decision via identity, not cost versus benefit. Because there was no benefit for him to turn up early. The consequences, we couldn't imply it. We couldn't impose any consequences on him. So he did it because he turned up because that's his identity. That's just who he is. So we all make decisions via cost versus benefit or we do it through identity. Now, what you need to do is that as a coach, if you're trying to get people to come and commit to this, you need to be able to tap into both. So you need to be able to give people enough benefits as to why you're doing it. And then you also need to create the environment and the culture that means that people enjoy being there. But also there will be people there that have this sense of identity and you need to tap into them and almost make them your superstars, make them your cultural architects, give them authority, give them the ability to lead by example and you almost use them as the role models, because they will take people along, like Phil Neville, and his example demonstrated at Everton. Yeah, and we can all think of people that fit that mould, can't we? Like, um, I don't know if we mentioned about uh, Roy Keane in the previous episode, but I had 
Mick Clegg on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Mick's um, great bloke, yeah. Yeah, well, he, he came on, and his was fascinating because he's obviously talking about that era of Ronaldo, um, Van Nistelrooy, Beckham, Keane. Yeah. And you look at that sort of changing room, and I know I know you've done a lot of work um, with, uh, behind Ferguson and about the, the approach that Ferguson's yeah. taken, as well as a number of other clubs, like you mentioned, about Barcelona. Well, that that dressing room in particular is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because there's some some characters in there and some people that we know uh, famously know a lot about and the, the impact that they can have. Yeah, but the, like, I, I, so I know Mick and I know what, how impressive he is, and and I'm sure he's recounted the story of Cristiano Ronaldo turning up on his first day and saying, "How can you help me be the best player in the world?" And then. Mick sort of coming in early with him and doing the boxing sessions and the weight sessions and then the stuff with his the weights on his ankles for training afterwards. And I know Mick was integral behind that early stage of Ronaldo's meteoric rise. But you look at that, that's the guy doing it because whether it's cost versus benefit and he's gone, I feel like this is worth my while. But equally, he's done it in the shadows. He's done it when nobody else is watching and he's doing it even when players might be laughing at him that tells you that very clearly it's an identity thing. It's an identity that he just sees himself as being um, the world's best footballer. And he identified that early on and then committed to doing everything to make that happen. So like, I know some of the guys at United that have told me stories about going to his house when he was living in Manchester and said like his house was set up and was just purely designed for him to be the world's best footballer. So his fridge was stocked full of all the right food. He had his gym that he would go and do some prep work in himself. He had he had facilities that meant that when he came home, he could recover fully. So this was a guy that his whole identity is built in. That how do I get the very best out of myself? And that identity, like, because you see that in some players, don't you? And that, that's not necessarily to, to make it as the best in the world, but it might be to play in the Champions League, to play in the Premier League. They have it sort of set in the mind at an early age that they're going to achieve something like that. Well, then, how can we as coaches impact that? Because if if players are struggling for the opposite of that, and they're struggling for that yeah. sort of whether you call it motivation or struggling to create that identity or, or that vision of what they're going to be, like what do you think are some things we need to be aware of in having an impact on players? It's a brilliant question, Ben. I'd, I'd say, I'd say. There's a great interview I did many years ago with a guy called uh, Angelo Dundee. Now, Dundee was the uh, coach for Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard and lots of other great world, uh, world champions. And when I sat down with him, I, I kept using this phrase about fighters. I kept saying, oh, you know, what was it like to work with this fighter? What was it like to work with that fighter? And he stopped me halfway through and he went, Damien, he said, I don't work with fighters. He said, I think you misunderstand. So what do you mean? He said, I work with young men that just happen to fight. And he went, it's the people bit that, that's key. And it almost was a brilliant articulation of this idea that you're working with people as opposed to athletes. Do you know what I mean? You work with young men that play football. You work with young men that want to compete at a certain level. So I think you've touched on a really important point here that we, it's the people element that we don't underestimate and that we shouldn't overlook. And I think we need to understand their story. We need to understand where they've come from. We need to understand their ambitions, their drivers, their fears, their beliefs. And when we can try to understand something about the human being that we're working with, 
then we can start to understand about how we can either help them on that journey or otherwise. So I think there's an element of don't underestimate the uh, the value of that social glue of just spending time talking to them rather than just doing it as a tick box exercise or or or, or getting into um, immediately how do we interact with each other uh, in terms of the business side of it. That Again, there's another great boxing coach that um, I did a book many years ago about a guy called uh, Thomas Hearns, who was a five-weight world, world, uh, world champion. And uh, when I went to Detroit, his coach was a man called Emmanuel Stewart that went on to train um, uh, Lennox Lewis to the heavyweight title. And he used a lovely phrase. He said, I work on the basis of contain, then explain. Contain, then explain. And what he meant was that was, was that he said, I think I'm the best coach in the world, so I can explain how to make you a better fighter. He said, but that would work on the basis of I'm trying to explain and then contain. He said, but if you're not convinced that I care about you, that I'm interested in you, that I know your story, your background, your history, you're not going to listen to me. When times get tough, you're not going to listen to me. He said, so you always need to make the time to develop that trust and that relationship before I start to try to coach you. And it's a more long-winded process but it's the one that creates that longer that longer term success because you will have bad times you will have shit moments we all do but what gets you through those moments is that you trust each other and you know that you can look out and rely on each other and that only comes through having the strength of relationships that can sustain you through those those bad moments so it's a long-winded answer to a really good question Ben. but i'd say don't don't underinvest in the strength of the relationship with the person behind it long before you ever start trying to convince them of the benefits of coming in the gym and, and the different knowledge and experience and wisdom that you're going to share with them. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Damien. This is certainly a top, top episode. I hope you're taking plenty from it. I just wanted to give a very quick shout out to our online community. So if you're not aware of our online community, if you go to footballfitfed.com, we have created an online platform um, which hosts webinars and presentations from our networking events. So you can go and check out. There's over 20 webinars available on all areas of football fitness from velocity-based training to working with youth players, um, loads of different topics on there. And also, uh, we usually run networking events across the UK. This year's taken a little bit of a, a tangent and a break from that, but um, usually we run network meetings across the UK and the presentations from those meetings get recorded and they also go up onto the, um, onto the community as well. So if you're not a member, you can go and check it out. You can sign up to a free month by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab at the top, Sign up there, make sure you go through the full registration and then that will give you one month free on the community. After that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward and you do get on-demand access to all the webinars and presentations that are currently available. But you will also get access to future webinars and presentations that are upcoming very soon as well as well as our interactive forum and our WhatsApp group. And I just want to give a very quick shout out as well to one of our community members. So Jack Inman has been a community member pretty much since we started the community. He's always attending our events. 
getting involved in conversations on the WhatsApp and on the forum. And Jack has just landed a brand new role, um, an SNC role. I won't announce where it is just because he's not put it out yet. But I just want to say a big congrats to Jack because he's doing exactly what we um, encourage people to do, improving his network, growing his network, and um, that has led to him getting this new role. So massive congratulations to Jack. And if you want to come and join our community, head over to footballfitfed.com and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Damien Hughes. Yeah, and it's related back to the, the High Performance Podcast. Like I, that was one thing that I took massively from some of the guests, that the, you hear the struggles that a lot of them have been through. Like you mentioned... Michelle Moan about all the whole divorce and the ex-husband and all the story behind that. Yeah. But then to relate it to football as well, the Lampard story that people, I think people look at him now and obviously see him in his current role and forget the sort of abuse and um, the, the the way he was like, well, it kind of picked on in a way, wasn't he? Like he was, he was targeted. And that was, that was, I know we'll maybe touch on it later, but that was sort of pre- social media as well this is sort of press and um oh no well i've I, I read a story in his book what was really interesting was when i was doing the research i got his book and i was reading it and uh he told the story and it really tickled me but not not to laugh at anyone it was more like the way he recounted it was he said that there was a kid where he used to sit when he was on the bench at west ham he said and there was a kid who sat two rows behind him about 14 and he used to be shouting all kinds of vile abuse at him. He said, whenever he used to get up and warm up, this fellow, this kid, would just be shouting like constant, like just filth at him. And he said, and he said he was always conscious of this kid that he was there. He said, and then where we grew up in Romford, he said he was in the bank one day, and the woman working in the bank said to him, said, oh, I'm a big West Ham fan. Me and my son go regular. So he said, oh, I'll meet you before a game and come and say hello, bring your son. And he said, and when he met her outside the ground. The son that was with her was the same kid that sat behind shouting all this filth. And it made me laugh that he he said that it ran through his head of, should I tell her what he does? Should I, And he said he also thought, should I tell her that he, I've caught him smoking <laughs> at the games? So he, he, like, he does make light of it. But I said it to him, I said, I, I said what really struck me there was, because then when I went back and checked his age, he was only 21, Lampard when he was in this situation of being faced with somebody that was tormenting him and abusing him and then having to be polite to him, which is what he did. He shook the kid's hand and signed his shirt. And it sort of made, the, it made me laugh, but in many ways it also made me feel really sad that for a lot of these guys that, that they are going through that struggle. And I think when you understand there's a human being on the other end of it with all their kind of insecurities and difficulties I think it's really it's really interesting there was another lad who was who was really fascinating a lad called uh, Reese Wabara now a lot of people didn't not necessarily know who he was beforehand but he was a kid that had come through City's academy ended up playing a couple of first team games when Mancini was the coach and then City let him go when he sort of drifted down the leagues for played for like Doncaster and Bolton and Wigan before we set up a, a fashion business now called Manier Devoir that is turning over like 20, 30 million pounds a year. So he's been incredibly successful. And what interested me was speaking to him around his experiences at City. And he said, you know what? I was focused on the wrong things. He said, I was a young boy. I had a flat in the centre of Manchester. I was driving a really souped up car, making a lot of money. I had lots of girlfriends coming around. <laughs> 
I was wearing all the bling. He said, and I got a reputation that stuck. Now, what was interesting was he said that it took him a while to realise that some of the senior players at City used to encourage him. You say, you keep wearing those clothes, you keep driving that car. It's brilliant that you're expressing your individuality. He said, what I didn't realise was these were the guys I was competing with for a first-team place. He said, and they were neutralising me by being kind to me and pointing me in the wrong direction. And he said, and unfortunately, he felt that nobody came along and tried to understand him that a lot of his behaviour was was born out of insecurity. That he, that he was driven, all the, that, the bling and all the things that people judged him to be um, a lad that wasn't focused was born out of his own insecurity. And people, and he said the people that directed him in the wrong direction were people that had a different agenda than him. But he said he never felt he got anyone that tried to just understand him as a person. And he felt that reputation stuck all the way through his, his subsequent career, which was why one of his big inspirations of setting up his own fashion business was he went, I can, I'm in control of it. I'm not at the whims or, or subject to anybody else's opinions or prejudices so you're absolutely right that I think when you try and unpeel it back and see the that everybody's going through their own struggles and I think that's why the best coaches are the ones that can really engage with the person rather than just the athlete I think that highlights a, a key responsibility of a coach as well the fact that we're not just coaches we're, we're kind of mentors as well aren't we we're there to like you say, help the person, not just the athlete? 100%. Absolutely, 100%. Man. I think that's a really powerful point that you're making that, yeah, I think uh, as a coach, don't get me wrong, this isn't about being somebody's mate. This isn't trying to be over, over, overly familiar with them. You know, I've seen lots of coaches fall into that trap in many ways, that they try and be overly friendly and then find it difficult to, to then get it back on a professional keel. So it's not about trying to impose yourself on a friendship but it's about just coming at it with kindness and empathy and understanding for the person engaged in that struggle or that particular challenge that they're going on with you know again I'll quote another interview that we did with Sean Wayne the England rugby league coach you know and I think his story was seemed to resonate with a lot of people because his childhood was brutal one of the phrases he told us was, he said, I don't have a single pleasant memory of my childhood. That he says his dad from, even when he was like seven or eight years of age, his dad, who was a big man, would sort of set about him two or three times a week and give him a good hiding. Um, and he says, I don't have a single pleasant memory from up until he left his home at the age of 15. But he feels that that experience has made him the coach he is today because he said, no, ch- no, no, athlete will ever come into my company and feel afraid no athlete will ever come and that I won't invest time to see the person that lies underneath that title of being an athlete and that if they're behaving in a so he says one of his criteria for selecting players is he says I listen to how they speak to staff at hotels and if they're rude or abrasive or obnoxious I go and have a word with them quickly and say to me that's not you that's not the person that you can be you know, and that's not the person I want in this culture and just challenges that kind of behaviour. Now, he's not trying to be their friend. He's not trying to be um, uh, something he's not to them, but he is being a mentor, as you say, just to guide them 
in the in in a more helpful direction. Yeah, I've got to say, without I'm not by any stretch a rugby fan, but I think his was probably my most enjoyable episode. Oh, right, brilliant! Just because I think it it was like like you say, so brutal in terms of upbringing. But the lessons and the way he spoke about what he'd learned from what he'd been through was so powerful, I thought. Yeah, I think it takes, um, it goes back to that phrase that I said that all of these guys that we've met, there's a humility to to know what they know and equally know what they don't know and learn from it. And I think one of his other experiences was that he said when he was a young player, a rugby league player, and he was just let go. Coach just said, I don't want you anymore. And he had to go and find a different club. And he said that I'll never let any player get treated like that as long as I'm in charge of them. That if if I ever need to let them go and we terminate a contract, they'll know long in advance why we're going to do it, what our rationale is. And there's a support network in place to help them move on to the next stage of their career. You know, and so I think there's a humility there to take these experiences, which in some cases are really traumatic, and turn it into triumph rather than let it define them. Uh, in tragic terms yeah definitely and when I when I was thinking about some areas to talk about Damien um, one thing sprung out to me and I I wanted to get your opinion on it so an episode again a while back with a um, coach called Gary Kinnean he works over in the States an Irish coach oh yeah I know Gary Northern Northern Irish guy that's incredibly successful over there great blog yeah yeah yeah, quality so he mentioned um, about S&C coaches or sports scientists having the first um, interaction with players a lot of the time, whether that be on a training pitch or a match day. So when you go out initially, you'll generally see the S&C coach or sports scientist first. And what he he was referencing that and saying that we as S&C and sports scientists can set the tone for that session, whether it be negative or positive. Yeah. So I was going to ask you and get your views on it in terms of what you think some important behaviours are to get the tone of that session um, to be what we want it to be. Ah, it's a brilliant question, and I think Gary's point is really uh, is really astute. I think I, I, I don't know if we spoke about this when we when we spoke last time on it, Ben, but I said I've seen so many um, that I often think that cultures can be undermined by support staff and I'd include myself or like you say S&C or, or the fitness coaches in that that they can undermine it or they can build it that uh, I've seen I, I often I remember many years ago being in a coaching box with uh, one coaching team and I came up with the idea of describing the group as either truth tellers or time tellers and the reason was because the coach I was working with was under pressure and he turned to his players, he turned to his coaches during the game and he went, what do we do here? I'm thinking of doing this. And both of his assistants said to him, uh, there's 20 minutes left. I remember thinking, I could have told you that and I don't know anything about the sport. What he was looking for was somebody to say to him, I think this is an idea or I don't think you're doing this or just to challenge his thinking and speak the truth to him. Now, the reality was the culture that was there was they didn't feel confident enough to speak up to him and therefore they were just sort of felt the need to say something so they just told him the time. And I think it's the reason I mentioned that in, in, in answering your question is that I think that there needs to be an investment 
long before you're asking SNC coaches how they set the tone, there needs to be an understanding of what the tone is mm. and how they can contribute to it. So they're not just there to um, uh, as participants, they're there to shape it themselves. So I think there's an element of understanding well, what are the non-negotiable behaviours that define your culture? And then when you see it being adhered to, catch people in. But when you see people not doing it, don't be afraid to catch them out. And you need to have that confidence to call out behaviours when they're not happening. But also that confidence comes from knowing that the, the head coach and the decision makers at the club will have you back. So I'd encourage anyone that if you want to understand what the tone is, go and ask the coaches and the other people that are responsible for the culture, what are our non-negotiable behaviours? And then you can work out how you go about setting the tone for that. Um, I'll give you an example again that comes from the podcast that we interviewed, uh, we got invited to go to uh, the home of uh, Mauricio Pochettino, the, the, the Argentine that was in charge at Spurs. Now, I should just say, I've never been to a house where it took me five minutes to walk up the driveway before. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, it was, a, it, it was a grand old house, but more importantly, he was such a warm and welcoming bloke that you couldn't help but what to sort of be engaged by him. And he was speaking about one of the things that he does to set the, to set the tone. Uh, uh, he did it at Espanyol and at and, uh, Southampton, but now does it uh, or did it at Spurs, was that he's got three non-negotiable behaviours. The first one is positive energy. So everyone has to bring positive energy to the uh, to the training ground. The second one is you have to have the right attitude. So it's about taking accountability. If things don't go right, there's no finger pointing, you just hold your hand up. And then the third one is you've got to be a team player. And he said that one of the ways that he felt it was incumbent on him to set the tone was he had a sofa moved right opposite the doorway when the players turned up at the training ground. And he said every morning he'd go and sit on the sofa with a cup of tea. He said that he'd wait for the players to come in. And he saw it as his role to shake the hand of every player that they came in. And he said in that handshake moment, when I look in their eyes and shake the hand, I can get a sense of what kind of energy they're bringing into the training ground that day. So my question was, well, what do you do if it's negative energy? He said, well, that's why I'm sat on the sofa. So the players, come and sit down with me here. What's happening? What's going on for you? Why are you behaving like this? What's, and he said, then, it, then it's the human element of it might be something going on at home or with the kids or something personal. He said, and we can try and work it out. So by the time they go into that dressing room, they, they're, they're demonstrating the behaviours that we need. And he said, and, and, and he said, and we'll spend as long as we need to to get to that place. Now, he he was the one that articulated a phrase that we spoke about last time, which was, eventually, if you can't sign up to these behaviours, this is where the FIFO effect kicks in. And it's sort of as his role of, you either fit in and adopt these behaviours or fuck off and go somewhere else. But the way he explained it was a really nice way of, 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 of articulating how the FO bit doesn't have to be uh, fractious or aggressive. His point was, he said, you know what, if those behaviours aren't right for you, we need to help you find somewhere that is. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you're not going to thrive within this culture, but you you owe it to yourself that you find a culture where you can thrive, that do accept your version of behaviours. So he was really clear at how he could set the tone 
as a coach in doing that. And then he said, and while I'm doing that, I can rely on my support staff to set up the training session that day, knowing that those three behaviours are what we expect because I've clarified it from the start. So I'm sorry I've taken a long time to answer that question, Ben, but I think to go back to it, I think before you can know as support staff or S&C coaches how to set the tone, you need to know what the non-negotiable behaviours are because otherwise some of these responses can look like gimmicks. Do you know what I mean? If, if they're being done in isolation from what's going on elsewhere, it starts sort of like a gimmick or a fad rather than a joined-up process of understanding how culture can be a competitive advantage. No, it, it ties in perfectly with our previous episode with Dave Tenney, um, who's a high-performance director now at Austin. He, right. he said the exact same thing. He said he's going into a new role, and one of the first things he's going to ask is what they expect from him. Um, and what they expect, that is going to tie into exactly the same sort of thing, those non-negotiables. Um, yeah. So no, I think that answer's great, and it makes complete sense that, yeah, we can't, we can't be setting things that we don't know what we're trying to work towards. Yeah, I mean, be careful of gimmickry. That's one of my big things that I go into so many clubs or teams, and you see gimmicks. Like, my pet peeve is when like, you go into gyms where they've got like what are supposed to be inspirational quotes on the wall, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win and things like that. And I say, yes, they do. I know plenty of winners that have quit. So it doesn't make sense. So what are you trying to get here that you that, that you stick at something even if it's not right for you? So, and, and, and I'm being pedantic there and picking on a quote like that, but you say, get it down because it's just, it's just noise. Mm. If you're going to put anything up on the wall, communicate your standards tell people the behaviors the non-negotiables when you're in this environment this is what we expect of you don't just rely on the gimmick of a quote or 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 a picture you tell people these are the rules this is the standards that we have here yeah that's a great point and and you mentioned something um just a few minutes ago about confidence as a coach and this is something that i wanted to ask about because Again, just to give a bit of context, we talk about sports science a lot. We talk about improving um, the importance or the way that people perceive sports science in S&C. And I think one thing behind that is that we need to back ourselves, have a bit more self-belief and confidence in what we can, the impact we can have on performance. So self-belief and confidence is a real, I know uh, it can be a massive area of of conversation and I don't want to take up too much of your time on it, but I just wanted to get your thoughts behind it on what we need to be wary of as practitioners yeah okay um, well to summarize it in a couple of words confidence comes from evidence so for you to feel confident in something you need to have evidence so you know you're capable of it or that it's possible so how do you start finding the evidence that therefore allows confidence to scaffold from it well there's a really simple exercise that anyone can do on this and i encourage this so often with with teams is to say do a simple exercise and i call it success leaves clues so go and find the evidence so sit down and go who is the best example of a recipient of my work or if you're thinking about uh, from a team point of view what's the best game you've ever played or what's the best season you've ever had you set the like you set the the parameters of where the investigation takes place, but start by looking at what when you're good, why are you good, and find evidence of that. 
And then from that, confidence then starts to come. So don't just take it for granted. Don't just dismiss it. Do a proper exploration of that success. What were the behaviours? How did we cope under pressure? How did we respond to adversity? Um, How did we communicate? Do a proper analysis because what you'll find there is the evidence that allows you to then know that that becomes who you are. That's your identity. That then feeds into um, your whole way of operating. So it's a very sort of succinct answer. And like you say, we could talk for a long time on it, but find the evidence of when you're good, why are you good, that enables you then to build on it. And and then I think when when you have confidence, I think one of the sort of um, consequences of that is you then start being a bit kinder to yourself. And when you're kinder to yourself, that allows you to learn. So when something goes wrong, the world doesn't fall, the roof doesn't fall in on you. You go, I can't do it. You go, you know what, it didn't work well that time, but that doesn't mean that I'm a bad coach or that I can't do this job. And therefore you can then work out, so what do I need to do better? How do I fix it next time? Mm -hmm. So I think there's lots of subsequent knock-on effects of having confidence, but it starts from finding the evidence of it. I love that. I think that's really good, really beneficial. So thanks for that. Um, Thank you. Damien, I'm really wary of your time. I don't want to take take up too much. No, go on. I'm enjoying it. It's nice to catch up I could do this all day, to be fair. Uh, (laughs) But I just wanted to take you into some of the quick-fire questions that we've been Oh, go on. Yeah, yeah. So the the first one um, is I always ask coaches who your biggest influences are in your career so far. Ah, wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to be biased on this. I'm going to talk about my dad. Um, I made reference to him earlier, but... Um, long before I was born, I grew up, uh, my dad had set up a boxing gym in North Manchester in the Collier area, which is where he grew up. And uh, he le- he'd left school at 15 with no formal education. He was, um, he was an illegitimate child born to an Irish Catholic family. So um, in the post-war Manchester, that was a real stigma. And uh, he'd sort of gone into boxing himself. He had no father figure and he got himself quite badly hurt doing it. And uh, it, it was a driver to almost be a father figure to people that he'd never had and also to go into a sport that he loved that made such a real difference. So he was doing it long before I was born and he became the first Manchester man to train uh, world champions. Uh, he had the numerous guys that went on to become Olympic, British, European, Commonwealth and world champions that came through his gym. But it was uh, he wrote a number of books uh, to raise funds for the club um, but it was this impact on life so a couple of years ago Ben Manchester Council named the road after him in uh, in the Colliers part of town and uh, when uh, in sort of tribute to uh, to his impact now my dad's quite poorly now he's got advanced dementia so um, but when we had the event like the Andy Burnham the mayor came down to unveil uh, the road and there was about 300 people turned up and I would estimate that I'd say 90% of the people that turned up to pay tribute to him had never set foot in a boxing ring, but they'd set foot in the gym. And what they wanted to come and pay tribute to was the impact of going into that gym had had on their lives in terms of teaching them values that they'd taken forward as parents, as partners, as professionals and other aspects. Um, and I just feel incredibly blessed that 
that was my that was my childhood that was my background so to grow up in an environment like that and to be able to see see him at work and see the impact of it has given me like a huge appreciation for the work of coaches and and it's driven a lot of the work that I do now I know how hard the job is I know how lonely it can be and I know how demanding it is so a big driver for me is to almost be a support for those coaches that I saw my dad desperately needed when he was going on to do it so I'm going to be biased there but I'll talk about my dad no, I think that's great. Um, I, I'd encourage people to go and listen to episode 11 as well because I know you, you talk about him in, in that episode as well. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. And then the next one, Damien, in terms of your your biggest strength as a practitioner. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, this challenges because then, despite what I was saying about uh, being kind, I, I, a natural aversion then kicks in to go, God, does that sound big-headed if you start talking about your strengths? So I'm sure there's lots of people feel that way. Um, wow. Um, I'd say I have some trademark behaviours that I don't compromise on. Uh, so if I can explain that, I think that then um, will answer the question of what, what if I've got a strength, I'd consider them to be. The first one is I try and come at everything through a lens of kindness and understanding and empathy because I think if you're kind to yourself you can be kind to others and if you're kind to others you can accept that people make mistakes we've all got flaws things can go wrong and it doesn't necessarily define the person that they are so I try and do everything through kindness first of all the second thing I try and do is try and uh, do things where I I, I feel it'll be fun because if it's fun you feel engaged and if you're engaged you'll give you time extra and things like that which is, you know, a big reason why I was really flattered that you asked me to come on originally and then come back on again because it, it's great fun talking to you. And then the third thing is that um, I'm driven to try and make a positive difference. So if I go into an environment where you don't feel you can make an impact or you're just uh, being a yes man or something like that, I'll walk away. So I, I don't compromise on that. That if I feel that that I can't go into an environment where kindness is valued, where people see it as a weakness or where it doesn't seem like it's going to be fun but more a slog or if you can't make a positive difference I won't I won't uh, go and work in an environment like that and I won't offer any value but if I can meet those three needs I feel I can bring uh, some strengths um, to uh, to a team or, or a culture in that way brilliant and then the next one, this this was um, probably, I, I put this one in place because of lockdown and a lot, a lot of coaches have cool. been through this. So, and I know you've been crazy busy, so it might not be as applicable. But what's the best bit of like CPD that you've seen or done recently? So whether that be like a webinar, whether it be like a, the, the podcast, um, just speaking to the best <laughs> that you guys have spoke to, uh, is there anything that stands out for you? uh yeah so I, like i'm a voracious reader like uh, my wife says i'm a secret geek but even <laughs> from being a kid I, I i i always just love reading that that's my escape uh and i'll read widely and read really variedly um now doing the podcast has been really great for that because when we, we know we've got a guest coming up i'll go and explore something about their work or things like that that uh that do it but yeah, there was a book I read just before lockdown that had quite a significant impact. Um, I was I was doing some workout in Poland and I was at Manchester Airport passing through and I saw this little thin book called Stop Reading the News 
by this writer called Rolf Tabelli. And I picked it up and I went, oh, that looks interesting. So I bought it and read it. And I, I was on a quick visit to Poland, so I'd, I'd finished it by the time I got back. And it was just a really compelling reason to say, stop taking your news sources from news sources. Said, anything that you need to know will find its way to you. Mm. Mm. Like, you don't have to go looking for it. It'll find its way. So if something is really important, somebody will come along and make you aware of it. Beyond that, it's just noise. And it was a really significant thing for me in terms of that I felt I was going down rabbit hole a bit of like social media was dominating. I was responding to notifications and things like that. So from a CPD point of view, um, this book was really good because it forced me to free up time by sort of stop uh, going on social media, stop, stop reading the news that meant I had more time to go back to my original passion, which is just reading as widely and as varedly as I could. No, I love that. That's class. Um, and then the final ones, mate, is, and I know this might be hard to narrow down again, but yeah. what do you think one of the best traits are of a coach or of a coach to have? Wow. Okay. Um, can I answer a few or do you need just one? No, no, no. A few. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, humility. So the ability to to ask questions and not get carried away with your successes, but be humble enough to accept that everybody's got something to contribute and be open to new ideas. Um, something around emotional intelligence is just not up for compromise. This is the ability to, it goes back to that phrase I've used about kindness and empathy and understanding of the person behind uh, the athlete. And then um, I'd say something around energy. So bringing positive energy to it. And then linked to that is something around integrity. So you have to be really clear of who you stand for. Because when I go and speak to so many players and I say to them, what do you look for in a coach? What's the best coach you've ever had? They always come back with two things, consistency and transparency. Tell me what you stand for and then just do it. So I might not agree with it, but you've told me what you stood for and then you applied it. And that creates that idea of integrity that people know where they stand with you. I love that. Yeah, that's class. And then the, the same question but for a player. Wow, okay. Um, I think, um, so again, humility is key for a player. That, uh, that if you only want to listen to people that, from, that are in your world, you sort of miss out on an awful lot of information. So humility is key there. Um, and I w- I'd say something around that idea of being able to uh, to take advice from other people. So that's the emotional intelligence bit. I'd be open to advice, but be but from a wide range of sources, but be discerning about it as well. Not everybody's right, but at least give them the courtesy uh, of listening to them. And then I'd say invest in your craft. Be obsessed about it. Don't don't play at it. Do it properly. If you're gonna if you're gonna go after high performance, understand that you have to be uh, invest time, energy, and uh, commitment to it. Brilliant, absolutely quality. I knew I'd enjoy this one, Damien. But that's been absolutely class. So thank you very much. Oh, no pleasure. Um, no, I've loved it. Thank you. 
Just the final thing, Matt, I always ask where to direct people, like if they're to, just to follow your work and stuff. And I know there's been a few changes in terms of social media. So do you want to just give it a little update? <laughs> yeah. So um, earlier this year, I, I mentioned that book that by Ralph DeBellium, I was not reading the news. Um, I sort of came to a decision. Um, I've been sort of playing around with it for a, for a while, but I, I just decided to remove myself from most of social media where, uh, where I could, so like Twitter, Facebook. Um, I've had to go on Instagram because I do a live Q&A with Jake uh, when we launch in the podcast, but beyond that, I'm not active on it uh, hardly at all. And that's not to be snobbish about any of this stuff. It was just... Um, there was a couple of reasons by it. I'd read a, um, I'd read the Ralph the Belly uh, the Ralph the Belly book, but I'd also read a brilliant uh, paper by a guy called Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychologist at Virginia University. And the paper he wrote has subsequently become a book. The book's called The Coddling of the American Mind, where he says that social media does three things to us in terms of our view of the world. The first thing is we divide everything up into into uh, two terms: it's right or wrong, good or evil. And he said, what that doesn't allow us to do is to see that there's subtlety, there's nuances, that not everything is in one of those two camps. But social media demands that you you that you either hate Donald Trump or you love him. Why can't I just not care? Why don't I why can I just not have an opinion? Well, you can't play in that position. So that's the first thing it does. The second thing it does is he says it almost becomes an echo chamber. So you only hear your own views reinforced back to you on social media. So, and then the third thing is, he says, we mistake people's feelings for facts. So people then just, that you might say something and people then feel offended by it or things like that, rather than accepting that it's just a different opinion. So there was that that sort of prompted me. And I was starting to think that maybe if I wanted to keep like learning and developing, social media wasn't maybe the best platform to do that. And then, on a personal footing, um, my little lad is only 11 and um, he's starting high school. So he, he was asking if we'd get him a phone. And one of the first things he started talking about was uh, get going on Instagram and things like that. And I was just adamant it wasn't a healthy environment for any child to go on. And I thought, I need to role model it. I can't tell him that he can't do it when he gets a phone. And yet he could look at my phone and see that I was on social media or distracted. So it's a long-winded way of explaining that. I just decided to remove myself from it and thought, if people need to get in touch with me, they can. there's, there's a website called liquidthinker.com where they're welcome to go on there. There's a contact page and uh, it gets sent on to me. So there's a lady that receives it for me that does some work for me and she just sends them on. So if people need to get in touch, I, I promise I'll always respond within 48 hours. If somebody does the courtesy of sending an email, I'll always take the trouble to respond. But that, to me, has freed up so much time uh, and mental space that I can do the stuff that I enjoy rather than uh, feel that I'm being distracted by something that's not always so helpful. Um, so, again, I'm giving long-winded answers. So sorry about this, Ben. But, yeah, there's a website called liquidthinker.com and there's a contact page there. If anyone's got any questions from what we spoke about today or maybe wants some more information or whatever, you're more than welcome to get in touch, and I promise I'll always, I'll always do the courtesy of replying to anyone that's kind enough to to do that. Brilliant. And if anyone has lived, been living in a cave and not come across the uh, podcast yet, then 
I recommend that you guys <laughs> go and go and give it a listen because honestly, I'm not just saying it because Damon's on the podcast, but it's it's getting to my favorite podcast at the moment. There's so much, such a mix of guests, and and the job that you and Jake do is is brilliant. So, um, oh, thank you. Yeah, keep up the good work, mate. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate. It. I feel like I'm like I. I think what it's given me is a real appreciation of of the skill that that you do on this podcast, Ben. Um, like it's the first time I've ever done anything like this of hosting it, and you know where you're trying to listen to the guest and do the courtesy of listening to them, and then trying to think of a appropriate follow up and trying to be sensitive to it is a is is a skill that I don't feel I've mastered, but I certainly gives me an appreciation of 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 just what you're doing, and you know, thank you for having me on and. I said it at the start, I'll say it again. Congratulations on churning out 106 episodes so far that that are filled with sort of really insightful questions and and coming at it with sensitivity and discretion. So appreciate you inviting me on. Not a problem. It's a pleasure to have you on, mate. And hopefully we'll we'll catch up again soon. Love that. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, let's not leave it as long this time. Definitely. Thanks a lot, Damien. Cheers, Ben. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did recording it because I absolutely loved speaking to Damien. I think there's so many takeaways every time I speak to him. Um, And I've got a number written down. I was trying to sort of make notes as we were doing the podcast, but I was trying to enjoy it at the same time. So the first takeaway for me is that he talks about high-performing individuals knowing what they know, but also knowing what they don't know. So knowing areas they need to develop Um, And I think that's really important as a coach, a bit of self-awareness on areas that we need to develop, but also know our strengths as well. We we had a brief chat about parenting, and that's one thing that I found really fascinating on the High Performance Podcast. We we brought up the Phil Neville example in the episode. Um, Being a, a relatively new parent myself, it was very relatable to me. He talked about Uh, He talked time and time again, actually, about non-negotiables, something that we spoke about before, so non-negotiable behaviours. And if you haven't listened to the High Performance Podcast yet, go and check out the Johnny Wilkinson one, because his answer on the question for non-negotiables was very interesting. So go and check out that episode. He talked about confidence coming from evidence and that success leaves clues. So We related this to building confidence and self-belief as a practitioner and he brought in the fact that the evidence behind that is very important and that then builds confidence um, from evidence of the work that we've done. And then one of the traits he brought up as um, important for a coach was consistency and transparency. So two really key skills, I think, when we're coaching Um, So they were my takeaways. Again, like I always say, I'd love to hear what yours were because I know there was so much information in this one. So I probably missed things out um, and I will listen back to it, but I'd love to hear what you guys took from the show. So please reach out on social media. um, Give us a tag on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, let us know what your takeaways were. I'd love to hear what they were. And like Damien said about social media, he's not currently on social media. So you can go and check out his website, liquidthinker.com, but also just go and check out the High Performance Podcast. I know I've said it numerous times in this episode, but um, that is where he's doing some of his top work with Jake Humphrey and the guests that they're getting on as well. So go and check that out. 
But as as always, huge thank you to everybody that has listened to the podcast. Um, I look forward to bringing you the next few episodes. Um, We've got some big guests coming up and I'll speak to you again next week in episode 107.